Welcome to The Wizardist Podcast. I'm Paul Canetti. If you haven't listened to episode one, uh, you can backtrack to learn more about this podcast and more about me, but I'm very excited about our conversation today with some folks from a company called Clara Labs. Uh, Clara is basically an amazing personal assistant type service that you use as if um, there was a real person there. You CC Clara onto your emails relating to scheduling, and she goes ahead and corresponds with the other person and schedules it for you. It's pretty seamless, pretty amazing, um, and I've been using it now for a couple of months. Totally has changed my workflow uh, and basically just cut out scheduling emails from my life forever, hopefully. Today we're talking to the co-founder and CEO. Her name is Marin Nelson. She is a two-time Y Combinator alum. She was on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. She has a background in psychology and neuroscience. She is just all around awesome. And as you'll see, she really has a passion for this sort of feedback loop that uh, Clara enables. Um, where basically it teaches itself to get smarter as uh, you use it. She is joined by Jason Laska, who heads up machine learning at Clara Labs. And Jason is an old friend of mine, like nursery school style. Uh, we grew up together sharing a love of technology. He went on to get a PhD in electrical engineering uh, before being one of the early employees at Dropcam prior to it being acquired by Nest. So he moved with them over to Nest, which is under the Google slash Alphabet umbrella, and uh, now is at Clara. Jason also is the founder of a mathematics journal called Rejectica Mathematica. Basically, they specifically publish things that have been rejected by other academic journals. Um, just quick story about how I learned about Clara. Um, someone I follow on Twitter had posted something about it, and I've tried a lot of these sorts of scheduling assistant type uh, services and been dissatisfied with all of them. So I was pretty skeptical. And then Marin actually joined in on the Twitter thread. And I thought that was pretty cool that like the CEO of this startup um, was sort of trolling Twitter and looking for people talking about Clara and, and that, you know, she had joined the conversation and, and she immediately was like, you know, let me know what you think. Um, and I like that sort of personal touch. And then as if that wasn't enough, Jason chimes in on Twitter and I did not know that Jason was working at Clara. I guess we hadn't spoken in a few months and he had left uh, Nest and started working at Clara. And I was like, why is Jason on this thread? That seems so random that he would like see this. And then I went to look at his profile and it's like machine learning at Clara. And I was like, what? So that was enough for me to jump right in and give it a try. And um, I hope that this interview isn't too much of a love fest since I really am uh, a heavy user of the service, but we dive into some pretty interesting topics around automation, around machine learning, it gets into autonomous driving, it gets into all sorts of fun stuff, um, and really about how software and humans can work together to create um, pretty amazing services. And uh, one thing that Jason said to me, but it was it was uh, not recorded, was that you know, a good way to think about the software of the future is to think about what only rich people have today, everyone will have in the future. And uh, and Clara and their personal assistant technology is definitely one example of that sort 
of thing. And so I definitely feel like a baller when I CC Clara and someone thinks that she's really my assistant. A small disclaimer, this was recorded over a Google Hangout as I'm in New York and they are in San Francisco, so excuse any funky audio. And so uh, I now introduce you to Marin Nelson and Jason Laska of Clara Labs. It's great to have you here. I have been using Clara myself for the past few weeks and have quickly become obsessed with it. Uh, for those that are not familiar with Clara, maybe the, the best way to kick it off is just for each of you to say a little bit about yourselves and about Clara and um, how you came to, to come up with this idea. And, uh, and then we can go from there. Cool. Sounds good. Uh, I am Marin, as introduced. We founded Clara, we being myself and my co-founder, Michael, about two years ago, two years and change. Uh, and it was really the product of my hating email, which turns out lots of people hate email. And in particular, the most tedious part of email for me was the uh, information shuffling and coordination of trying to meet with someone. Um, and it turns out it's really imperative that you do that correctly, because if you mess something up, uh, people hate you. So ended up really caring about this problem and personally obsessed with productivity and organization, regardless, um, wanted something that was cheap enough that I could afford it, but that had agency such that I could depend on it to do scheduling. So a quick uh, intro, since we haven't done it, Clara schedules meetings. And and that's really all we do, all we think about. Um, and in doing so is really helping you manage your week, your day-to-day, -day, your time, your relationships, um, and keep you on top of your life. So. And it works. And it works. Cool. So uh, I'm Jason. I work on the machine learning at Clara. Um, and uh, I was introduced to Marin and Michael by a coworker who said, you know, you got to check this company out. They're really up your alley. Um, and what really sold me on the idea was this idea of kind of um, building specialized user interfaces um, for surfacing machine learning predictions to people and having those people um, fix the predictions or provide some kind of positive feedback loop. And one of the things I learned in kind of past jobs was um, building consumer facing products that are driven by machine learning algorithms is very challenging. And not because the machine learning itself is necessarily challenging, but um, just by its nature, the results are necessarily stochastic. There's going to be some probability of error. And so how do you drive a product or how do you, um, message results that aren't always correct? Or how do you correct those results in some way that provides kind of a seamless experience? And that was, you know, Clara's approach from day one was kind of thinking about these kinds of problems. And I was, uh, I found that very appealing. Yeah, it's, it's a s deceivingly simple task, right? Because it's something that we all do every day in our personal lives and our business lives. We schedule meetings, dinners, hangouts, doctor's appointments, whatever it is. Um, and it's so common that you mistake commonality for simplicity. Um, but when you really start to examine, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that I've sort of 
you know, uh, introspectively discovered as a Clara user is just how weird my scheduling habits are. Um, and understanding sort of this, the strange logic, if there is any, that depending on exactly who the person is, I decide if I want to see them this afternoon, even though I have an opening this afternoon, or if I would rather see them in a couple of weeks, or if I would just rather seem like I'm not available for a couple of weeks. And there's all these like crazy weird psychological factors. Um, you know, uh, basically to summarize from a user perspective, uh, the way that Clara works, or at least the way that, that I've been using it is I'm on an email chain with someone. And at that pivotal point where it says, great, like we're going to do something, we're going to have a meeting, we're going to have a coffee, we're going to get on a call. I just CC Clara and she just takes care of it. And then one magical day, I look at my calendar and it's like coffee with Jason. And I'm like, wow, like I had nothing to do with that. Um, and, and it's pretty amazing. Like seriously, it, it, it's, it's so much of like a mental load, you know, and my email chains are about 80% shorter because they seamlessly get passed off to Clara and I have it set up so she doesn't BCC me after like the first one. And I just don't even know about it. It's just happening without me. Um, and it's, it's really, really powerful when you guys first started thinking about it. Did you right away know that email was the right like interface or did you consider sort of an, an app or, you know, um, I'm really curious about how you sort of came to, to even know what you wanted, let alone build it. Yeah. So email is gold as a first interface for Clara, uh, for a lot of reasons. I'll, I'll back up a little bit and say, you know, to piggyback on your experience using Clara, you can imagine that when I was 21 years old, uh, starting my my first company, which no longer exists, and really just desperately trying to sell our little baby product in Y Combinator, um, the volume, the sheer volume of people that I was trying to schedule meetings with was huge. So there is this kind of difficulty for every additional meeting, it is not the same cognitive load. By meeting 10 in a week, you are just truly managing so many emails about this at any given time that you cannot fit all that information in your head very well anymore. Um, and you are dropping the ball and you are uh, you are hurting the relationship that maybe hasn't even really started yet, but that has a lot of potential value for you. So the problem, the genesis of the problem for me started in email. Um, that's reason number one, this interface makes sense. Most of your meetings are probably scheduled professionally for, for the vast majority of people. Email, email is that infrastructure. The second reason it's amazing though is because email, if you can respond to an email in 15 minutes, you are like amazing, right? Um, and for us, since we have since we have a lot of messages that are going through contractors, you know, that are working with us on the back end, we call them Clara remote assistants. A lot of them are, you know, uh, executive assistants that are moms that now want to work from home, work more flexibly, all this stuff. And they're helping us uh, parse messages that are otherwise too complex for us to automatically respond to. Um, so, so there is a queue of messages that we have that we need them to be able to look at, go through, say, yes, this, this makes sense. No, this doesn't make sense. It should be this, uh, to go through that queue. So for us, 
if we can get 15 minute response times, which we have, um, in email, that's amazing. If it's something like an app where you're used to something that's instantaneous, it's less of a beautiful user experience. Yeah, and also to speak to the style of kind of interface that we have, it's very much a, a natural language interface where you just talk to Clara as you would any person, um, and it gets all of that nuance. And um, you know, I, I think that email is, especially these kinds of emails, are one of the few places where that that interface really makes sense because it's already how you're. Just like you said, just you're copying Clara on an existing conversation and saying like, hey, take care of this. Um, that's what you would do with an assistant as well. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting because a little known fact about me is that in 2010, when I was debating whether to start Maz or not, um, which is the company I ended up starting, it came down, my co-founders and I, it, it came down to two different startup ideas that we were interested in. One was this this idea of creating a publishing platform for apps, which is the one we ended up choosing. The other was a product called Schedule Something. And Schedule Something was a product that was aimed to solve this exact problem because I personally had this problem and I hated everything about it. And, and the thing that really didn't make sense to me was that my entire schedule is digitized. It lives in a cloud. It's all organized in a machine. And everyone else that I'm corresponding with also has a calendar, which is digitized and, and understandable by a machine. And yet, we're not taking advantage of any of that internet-y stuff. We're just talking to each other as if we had nothing, no digital calendar and if the internet didn't exist. Um, and, yeah. and it's really amazing. The way we conceptualized it at the time was some sort of app, but we couldn't figure out the opt-in problem. In other words, the magic would only happen if both of us were using this app and if both of us, and so it's funny actually scheduling this podcast with the two of you, I had your Clara's and my Clara having this like weird, you know, recursive like dialogue that reading it is hilarious because it's like, hi Clara, like, do you know when Paul's available? Well, Clara, I don't know, you know, love Clara. Um, and it's like, <laughs> it's amazing to see, um, but it's really elegant because here only the sender needs to use Clara and they get the full benefit of Clara, regardless of whether the other person is using it or not. And then as far as just managing email, like I've installed basically every email plugin there is boomerang, whatever, like to deal with that, you know, sort of constant influx. But again, there's a big barrier there, which is getting someone to download the Gmail plugin and all this stuff. And it just, it's so incredibly seamless to get onboarded with Clara and then also to immediately reap the benefits without like inviting your friends. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I love and that we've tried to be very conscientious of is that while as a Clara customer, of course, Clara knows a ton about you, can save you a massive amount of time. And that's amazing. The person that you're meeting with is actually also getting a huge benefit which is to say, as opposed to you starring that email at the top of your inbox and getting back to them in 24 hours, Clara will get back to them in 15 minutes. You know, if, if they forget to follow up and now look kind of like a doofus and in some world that just totally falls into the abyss, Clara will actually send them just a, hey, you know, friendly reminder, do, do you want to make this happen? Um, social conscientiousness and time savings and follow through that is encouraged on both sides and that makes it 
just a tremendously better experience for everything, everyone. One thing that we love, and, th and this happens frequently, one thing that we love is the number of our customers that will get emails from their meeting participants being like, oh my God, your assistant is like the greatest assistant <laughs> I've ever interacted with. Claire has gotten chocolate, flowers, like it's oh my God. truly, yeah, it's truly nuts, the, the affection, because it's just so conscientious. Right, and that's why it's important. The stuff that, ja that Jason's talking about, um, with picking up the nuance. You know, you can't have a Siri do this. If if you put a Siri ask interface with the kind of insensitivity that is par for the course in, you know, machine learning as as it stands, you just wouldn't get the same emotional connection, the same like uh, conscientious response that you can get with, with something like Clara. Right, you probably wouldn't get chocolates and flowers, but I also think the expectation is significantly different when you're using a service that you know for a fact is some sort of AI thing. And so like in, in my UX course, I have this sort of equation and apologies to Jason, who is a person who actually does like real equations. This is like a, a phony equation, um, but it's basically, user experience equals product over expectation. And so to me, UX is not some sort of static ideal where there's good UX and there's bad UX. I'm like a, a UX relativist in that it's all relative to the expectation coming in. And so there are two ways to improve an experience. One is to improve the product and one is basically to, to lower the expectation and either one is gonna raise the value <laughs> of your fraction, you know? Um, but it's really interesting because it's quite challenging. I see Clara and just like balls to the wall. Like I don't, there's no side note. Like, by the way, this is a automated service I'm using. Like I just see, see her, like she literally works with me. It's Clara at masdigital.com. And the person on the receiving end, that expectation is like, okay, Paul's CCing his assistant. Like, so you are setting yourself up with a really high denominator um, and then, you know, you need to at least match that or if possible exceed it. And so how do you sort of think about that, like the expectation of the user? And it's interesting because I, I didn't think of it this way, but Marin, you're right. There's, there's actually two users for every Clara correspondence. There's like the Clara customer, the sender, but the recipient is also using the service whether they even know it or not. Totally. Yeah, no, I think that's correct. For us, the bar was always a human bar. And that's what we believed had to exist for something like this to be possible. So the thing that we have gunned towards is not, oh, AI comes first. Let's make that the front and center. Let's, you know, whatever. It was, it was not a bot. It, it has never been about bots. It has been about the best conceivable user experience that we could create where if the bar for us is human, we have to be tremendously better enough than what you'd expect in interacting with a human that we are exceeding the expectation and we are providing a good user experience. And the way that we do that, of course, is by not forgetting, by not dropping the ball, by being speedy about response times at night on weekends, right? By making sure to actually send the calendar invitation with the correct details. Um, and those things are incredibly challenging for humans to achieve. 
but they're simple for us. Like those are, those are the parts of the system that are the easiest because it is software enabled and memory, speed, accuracy, those things are the strengths of a software system. Uh, one thing else I'd like to speak to about humans is, you know, humans do sometimes make mistakes. And of course, because we're software enabled, um, we try to bring that mistake rate down by by giving them as much in, you know correct information as we possibly can, or just you know validating against what they're doing. Um, but even if they do make a mistake, there is somebody on the other end. There's some kind of recourse, right? You can you can say, hey, this was a mistake. Um, can you just change the time zone or something? You know, some minor thing, um, and it will get fixed. Information will be integrated into our system where we have a system of kind of tracking these mistakes and, and kind of um, helping people get better. And so unlike a bot, we kind of have a, a light level of customer support baked right into the product that you would have with a traditional assistant as well. We also have, of course, traditional support um, for bigger challenges. But um, I think having that level of kind of interaction is also uh, really key and it's something you would never get out of a Siri. So, so zooming out a little to this general like theme of software enabled human services uh, or, or whatever you guys call sort of the generic form of, of what you're building, um, what are other products or services in the world that are sort of taking advantage of the same thinking? Not necessarily the exact same system that you guys have in place, but but what are other examples of where this is working or not working or other areas you think it could be applied to? Um, because from what I can tell, it is sort of this very interesting mix of human services, software, Jason, you're right, like customer support built in. And then also on the machine learning side, it's like human enabled machine learning instead of just a machine off in the corner, you know, learning by itself. Yeah. And I think the thing that you're speaking to is something that we're really obsessed with, which is that feedback loop that truly exists at this company where humans are enabled to be fundamentally better at their work because of the software that exists. And by virtue of doing the work in our software, the software is being trained, right? and getting smarter by the humans who are participating. So there is that like complete. Um, yeah, I think Marin, you've called it a virtuous cycle in the yeah. past, which I really like. Uh, but then the people can see our predictions and they can correct them. And that serves to give us better labels on harder versions of the problem, right? When we make a mistake, that's something that's harder for us right now. And so we get a really good you know, correction on that from them. Um, and so it's kind of like this great virtuous cycle. And uh, so, so I'll say a few things. One, at a high level, every company in the world right now that uses any kind of technology has some version of this, which is, you know, my laptop is, I have a relationship with it. It's supposed to make me better. And kind of vaguely Apple, who makes my laptop, learns from my usage of the laptop, right? Something fucks up and I get, ma I get mad and I tell them or whatever. It's not as tight of a feedback loop 
you know, I'm not interacting directly with Apple. They don't understand when I'm frustrated with them every time. And this is true. Uh, in a way that Clara does. Non-technology businesses, you order from a restaurant and they give you the wrong order and you call them, but that's not being like captured anywhere. Totally. I think that, I think that that relentless focus on the feedback loop and on capturing the way that people feel in the system and and learning from it and being religious about that is the core of the company. The the example that I'll give that makes sense visually for people though, um, something like Amazon, right? Amazon is the biggest robotics company in the world. Uh, they have warehouses with huge numbers of robots in them who are trucking all around, so cool. carrying boxes, sorting everything, right? It's incredible the infrastructure that they've built but it's not just robots you know robots are not delivering you your packages um but it, it is largely automated so there is this human the human drives the car to go to the factory to put the bot and then they have to move the boxes manually into the whatever with the forklift to go to the fully autonomous robot that moves it around the warehouse to go to the not autonomous robot that whatever right this is how these this is how these services um, function today. The thing that's different than Amazon is that the robot doesn't get to watch the person do work and learn how to do the work from the person, right? It, th- that feedback loop doesn't exist there, where in this system, it really is much more like a, a bot actually gets to, and I, I don't want to use the word bot, we, we, ge- we yeah, generally yeah. tend to avoid it, but... The software. Yeah. It's like a software apprenticeship. Yeah. Um, instead of the more linear yeah. approach of Amazon, which is just like at various points in, in the process, you know, one step is human, one step's not. And and so just a, a, a quick anecdote thinking of Amazon. So obviously I, I order way too much stuff on Amazon and now I'm using Amazon Prime now. You guys have Amazon Prime now on the West Coast too? Nice, I'm, yeah. I'm assuming. Um, anyway, but now it's expanded to like food and groceries. And so I can just be as lazy as I possibly want to be and use Amazon prime now, like for everything. And so the other day, um, I was sitting in my house and I'm like, man, I just wish I had some fruit. Like I don't, I just don't have any fresh vegetables or fruit in my house. And I just wish I did. And I was like, wait, like that's a thing now I can, I can open this app and I can order it. And so this is literally what I did. I put in the order and then like, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes later, I get a text from an unknown number and it's like, Hey, I'm at gourmet garage, which is the name of the grocery store. They're out of tangerines. Do you want me to get some other sort of orange or just like not get that? And I was like, what, what do you mean? Like, I don't understand. Like I put this in an app. Isn't there some robot warehouse where you're going to get my tangerines? Like, you know, but, but really Amazon prime now is, is a, a person, a dude or dudette who is literally at the grocery store that I normally go to, but I'm too lazy. So someone else is there as my avatar, literally in the fruit section, just picking up fruit off the shelf. And then they're going to go to the cash register and buy the fruit the same way I would have bought the fruit and then bring it to my house the same way I would have brought it to my house. But if it wasn't for this text, I would have described that as mostly a software interaction but it turns out almost all of it is human. Yeah, I, I, to speak to that, I, so I would, I would um, one thing I would say is, you know, we've always believed that automation is kind of a spectrum. Like on one end, you have this pure software kind of, um, you know, we're going to 
get an email in and we're going to make a decision on it. We're going to automate it out. And then on the other end, I think, and I don't want us to um, kind of make people think that this is what's happening. You know, on the other end, you just have people looking at emails and responding. And that, that's not really how our system works. When, when an email comes in, it actually gets split up into a bunch of different kind of parameters. Um, or you can think of it almost like for every email, there's a form that you could fill out that's like, what, what's new about this email? You know, did they mention a time that they were available? Did they mention a place that they wanted to go? You can imagine kind of filling out this form and that actually goes into an automation system, which is purely robotic and software. And so that system knows everything that's happened before on uh, the course of this scheduling this meeting. Um, and it's also able to generate the output response or generate the next action or set a timer for a follow-up in three days. And so it, it's very much like a spectrum. And so if you send us something that we've never seen before or our system can't model, then maybe it gets completely overridden to this like very, very human case, like what you're talking about at the grocery store. But there's the vast majority of messages lie in this middle range where Maybe we're pre-filling some of the things in that form. We don't understand what to put in the form, but the output that gets sent to everybody is, is still controlled kind of by our software. And that's what really enables us to track every little facet of what's going on. And it's nice that we don't have to move physical objects in the in the real yes. world because those <laughs> right. robot those robots would be very no, sophisticated. No and robot forklifts are required so. here. So yeah. This is all insane. And again, the beauty of it is that when you're actually using the product, like you don't need to know any of that. I, I think it's super interesting, but probably for your average customer, they don't want to know and don't care. It's just, again, like the magical you know, fairy in, in your computer. But how did you even get down this road? So like when you started the company, you obviously knew what the outcome was, but did you know off the bat that you were going to need natural language processing and machine learning and this tight feedback loop? Or did you sort of discover that as you went deeper down the rabbit hole, realizing sort of how far the tech could take you? Because you said, for instance, like Siri can't do this or they'll never be able to do it. I'm sure that like hardcore AI people are would agree with you that you can't do it today, but they would yeah. disagree with the statement that you'll never be able to do it. I'm not talking never like a thousand years, but you know, like, like in the next whatever period of time where it would matter to a company like yours. Um, and so did you imagine it being an AI type thing from the beginning? Did you know that it was going to be sort of this hybrid spectrum like Jason was describing? How much of that did you have to sort of uncover on the fly? Yeah. Uh, so a few things. Firstly, we do believe there's a huge amount of this work that you can capture and you can do automatically it is important to us to position ourselves to be the company that is learning how to do that the best, the fastest. And that's why this feedback loop is so key, right? The feedback loop that exists right now is not just interesting for the work that's happening right now. Um, it's, it's interesting because we have a system that is already today learning in a way that, you know, Siri's not even touching this problem. Apple's not touching it. Google's not touching it. Microsoft, like the, the amount of time it will take them to get here, uh, to get to something like this, will, will be will be a while. That is not to say it is not automatable um, in time. So I, I think yes, the answer is uh, at the beginning, 
So the true beginning, actually, Paul, it's funny that you say that you started a scheduling company. The true beginning, Michael and I, my co-founder, built this like really dumb widget. Um, we may still own time to chat.io, right? So our first version yes. was a widget. It I'm gonna was go there right a, now. We wanna <laughs> God. Um, it's you won't be able to find anything. Thank God we've scrubbed ourselves clean of that horrendous disaster. Um, it was like an HTML form or something. It's you know, very it, it, and it just didn't. It just didn't work. You know, it, it solved fifteen percent of the problem. I think there are tons of these efforts to to solve the scheduling problem because so many people know it so well. It's it sucks. Nobody likes it. Um, but everyone tends to come up with the same. You know, some version of the same solution, which is like, oh, if I have a different type of HTML template in this email where people click through and choose the thing, and like maybe there's a network effect eventually if I can get to a good enough user experience that everyone's using it. Uh, but it, none of these things have ever really taken off. And, and you have um, to retrain the user. Like even if that yeah. software did work, you're changing their normal workflow and and the approach totally. that you guys are taking. And, and I think it's an interesting and instructive approach for all sorts of startups is to basically just ride the train that that your user's already on and not try to like yep. you know change the track um, because. Because there's literally no change to what you would normally do or it, how, how you fantasized about having an assistant and now you just have one. Like, yeah. um, and, and so it just, there's really nothing to learn in a lot of ways. Yeah, you yeah. Know? which is totally the goal. Um, but I will say, yes, we knew from day one when Michael and I agreed for the very first person, yes, sure, we'll schedule meetings for you. Um, we weren't we weren't thinking, oh, we'll just perpetually have this be a human service and we'll try to, you know, provide it on the front end. We knew that the the opportunity was very much there to create the feedback loop that that we've been talking about right now. Um, Michael being the person uh, between the two of us with the background that you know, he was kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can automate this. And I was like, sick. <laughs> like, let's, like, whatever let's you say, yeah. Two things before you yeah, move yeah, on sure. to the next piece. One one is, um, you know, doing machine learning in practice is very different than kind of the latest and greatest academic research. And one of the hardest things is coming by really good data. And really good data doesn't just mean lots of data or just collecting every data point. It means annotations. It means people actually saying what that data is. You can see, like, I think Google just released last week, um, you know, 8 million YouTube videos with all of their knowledge graph annotations on it. Like, that's really valuable because most people can't get that. Um, or it takes a long time to build a data set like that. So for us, these, these labels kind of come for free. And because the people providing them are not just some random mechanical Turker uh, doing it, you know, in India, um, they actually understand what's happening in these jobs, and then we get very high quality, very low error labels. Um, the second thing is um, kind of piggybacking on what Marin was saying. You know, uh, an example we really like to talk about here is kind of the self-driving car, kind of Google versus Uber. Yep. Um, Marin has a lot of thoughts on this, but uh, the idea there is like, you know, Google is kind of going for that perfect self-driving car. Let's let's never release anything until we can put it on the road and everyone will trust it. Um, and they've pioneered you know, amazing technologies and they're really building a, a really amazing piece of uh, technology. But 
Uber has been racking up miles with partial with human drivers in partially self-driving cars for like a year or, or if not more. Um, there's some stat. Right. That I don't in know. a way, the, the Uber driver is yeah. my tangerine guy. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. like yeah. they're just doing Completely. exactly what they were told. It just so happens that that you still need a human to go in the grocery store and you still need a human to put their their foot on the on the pedal. So the thing that makes the self-driving car example such a good one for us is that where with the tangerine guy or most people working in most factories, you don't have the direct ability to train a software system or train a robot based on the work that a human is doing. Um, the the stat that I've given before is, you know, you look at the Google self-driving car program. Again, really cool. Uh, They've they've driven millions of miles, you know, a few a few millions of miles over the course of the what decade that that they've spent um, trying to do this and are nowhere near commercialization of of anything. On the other hand, you have Tesla, right? Tesla's consumers have driven a hundred million miles with the self-driving feature of Tesla on already, and Tesla understands that data right they're learning from their users directly um and that's the kind of commercialization and this is what i think that elon is best at actually people don't tend to talk about this everyone's like he's the scientist we're going to mars you know we're going we're going to the future with jason's elon musk mars. jason's going to mars and that's great um i think that the thing that elon is wildly smart about and better at than anyone else in the world is looking at the future and understanding what it will take to commercialize the future today, right? He knows that you're not just gonna sell people solar panels if it's gonna bring down the commercial value of their homes. They care about the commercial value of of their homes. They know that you're not gonna just buy an electric car because you care that much about the environment, right? Right. You need a beautiful electric car. It has to be gorgeous. Um, And he has this really good way to connect the technology that will power the future to the application that works for people in their lives right now. And, you know, at at Clara's, um, the version of the company that I would like for us to execute against looks very similar to that. What is the commercialization right now that sets us up to be the people that are really helping set the groundwork for the future? You know, for any startup founder or, or, you know, um, aspiring startup founder, I think this is really good advice that if you you can become paralyzed by your own sort of idealism um even thinking back to maz like so i remember my co-founder and i simon uh who jason also grew up with like we would so the earlier version of maz was all about ingesting pdfs we would we would take magazine files and sort of convert them into something that then the publisher could come back and actually dynamically edit and put in you know um videos and 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 whatever. Um, and so they would upload a PDF to our site. We would get a mailer that was like, someone just uploaded a PDF. The user would get a mailer like, your PDF is now processing. And then one of us would have to run home, download that PDF, like run it through a bunch of scripts, do a bunch of weird, crazy yeah. stuff, like put it in various zip files, name them correctly, a- upload them to Amazon S3, and then trigger a mailer that was like, your issue's been processed. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how every uploader starts, by yeah, the way. Exactly. Um, and then, of course, now, you know, six years later, it actually is 
fully automated. But but actually, the end user experience has been the same all six years, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I think that 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 approach is something that a lot of people don't realize that, um, you know, this idea that perception is reality. So if the user feels like it's automated, it doesn't actually matter if it is or if it isn't. Um, the, the important thing, of course, being that you still have a real path to unit economics that right. makes sense, right? Because right? you you are at some point going to have to pay to acquire your users, yes. and you want to have well, it's a continuum. You have it's a continuum, right? Like like you know, right. you can get out the door today with something on Jason on your spectrum, you know, that's all the way sort of at zero automation, and right as long as you have an actual plan to sort of you know, beat your users to the punch and scale over time, um, that can be more of a crossfade, you know, uh, than, than zero to a hundred. Um, I will, I will give white combinator, um, credit in a, in a big way. It's hard for me because I, I feel kind of bizarrely like I grew up in white combinator or something. Um, I've been through it twice. Clara went through, uh, and and my previous company did as well. So I went through at 21 and at 22. And they have so many really healthy anecdotes about, you know, the, the Stripe founders in the early day of Stripe running through a process that sounds very similar to the one that you just described, right? Um, Ironically, Michael and myself we were, were totally early, fine. We were early Stripe Go users, ahead. so... We were oh, really? running our business while they were probably doing the same thing. It's like this big domino <laughs> nice. effect of like like fake automated startups, you know. Um, totally. And even if you think about fraud, actually, there's really Palantir was birthed because PayPal was spending so much money having people try to manually go through and detect fraud. Um, there's tons there's tons of examples of this going from something that is quite manual to something that is uh, really well software enabled in a way that makes it scalable and in a way that makes it uh, cost efficient. Yeah. Well, and I think I think what's fascinating about it is that total automation might not be the goal. And I think that that is sort of a revelation when you realize that what's optimal for the user experience is not necessarily automation. And, you know, Jason, for instance, you, you worked at Google or, or rather under Nest, which I guess is part of Alphabet, which formerly Dropcam. And so is the culture there, to me, it, it almost seems like automation or having it fully controlled by, by software is a badge of honor um, in a way that, uh, that maybe for other companies, that's a means, not an end. Yeah, I mean, um, Google is a really great technology company, and they've developed a culture around building really hard, really great technology. And because of that, they have um, some of the best kind of state-of-the-art things in machine learning. But at the end of the day, machine learning, it's, it's, like, it's like saying you're going to build a software product that only has like one routine in it or something. There's a lot more that goes into a full product into integrating it. It's like saying, um, well, we're gonna build this software, but it's only gonna have a command line interface and that's all that matters. We built like the best software under the hood and we don't need to put any graphics in it. You know, like you, machine learning is just one little piece yeah. and it's actually, Google will, will certainly admit this. Um, they have actually lots of papers on this where they're like, 
to the to the surprise of academics, it's actually the smallest piece. <laughs> you know, well, it's, the harder parts are getting the data and then building a real product that can function around it. You know, so. right? You know, depending on who you talk to, you'll hear sort of phrases like, "Well, that's just the UI," and what I always try to remind people is that by definition, the UI is the only thing that the user interfaces with. Uh, <laughs> right. That is so, the only thing, 100%. Yeah, right. The name of it is the user interface. And so yep. um, it's really unique in, in Clara's case because the interface is is an email. You don't have buttons and you don't have graphics and you don't have, you know, and, and even thinking of these other sort of abstract, you know, software-enabled human services like Uber, they do have an app, um, but the product itself, the interface is the car and the driver and and it's all integrated. Um, the interface for Amazon Prime now is the is includes the bag with with the fruit in it. Um, and so you know the interface keeps expanding. Uh, the way that I love to talk about why conversational interfaces are interesting at all um, is is, kind of by going through a brief history of computing, which I will do quickly now. Uh, you look at Jobs. Jobs was fucking brilliant. Why was he brilliant? Well, he looked at the first ever traditional graphical user interface, right, that we think of now, the thing with the button, the button that says send in your email, the button that says whatever, and said, whoa, if, if I bring this traditional graphical user interface to market, it means that non-programmers can specify behavior to a computer. It can tell a computer to do something. Before Jobs, the only people who could tell computers to do anything were programmers. They had to spend all the time to learn the language of the computer. So you're seriously limiting the number of people who can do anything interesting in computing. He he broke that in a in a really interesting and big way um, by thinking about the traditional graphical user interface. And and now we've existed for decades, kind of in that world. Um, where we've played more and more in this space of, oh, cool, you know, you you click this button and this button will send this thing, or you click this button and that will do X other thing. But programmers are still the only people who can specify complex action to machines, right? You do still have to learn a programming language to yourself communicate complexity uh, to, to a machine. And the thing that's really powerful about conversations is that they are complex. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot that's packed in there in, in language. Um, so if you can get a machine to understand language, then you allow anyone that can speak language, aka everyone, to communicate complexity to a machine. And that's that's amazing. That unlocks so much of the capability of our computers. Right. And as you're, you're, you're moving further and further down the continuum from, you know, the punch cards uh, of early computing and, and basically lowering that barrier to entry for someone that wants to be able to compute. Um, and it's, it's funny. So Jason and I sort of flashback, imagine early, to mid-90s Apple geeks before it was cool to be an Apple fanboy. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was very uncool, but we weren't self-aware enough to know that. Um, like, both of our rooms were decorated with just, like, 
like magazine ads of like the Mac 2SI and like the most, you know, like um, computers now that look like old beige computers, but at the time they were the coolest old beige computers. I, I feel like you guys had a new one every every six months or something, which at that time was crazy. Like nobody I had definitely inherited that from my dad yeah. and still do it. But yeah. but but yeah, I think I think that abstraction, removing that abstraction is right. So I'm experiencing this now um, in the analog world with I have a daughter who's a little over one year old and I'm seeing machine learning or I guess it's just called learning um, in real time because for instance, um, Jason's so talking about, you know, like, like labeling data. So a motorcycle will go by and she'll say bike. And she has miscategorized the motorcycle very understandably as a bicycle. And I'll correct her and say, it's a motorcycle and and you start to see how it actually comes together. And in a lot of ways, it's not dissimilar than what you were just describing, right? Because, because in order for her to interface with the world, she needs to learn the same language that the rest of the world is, is using. And she's doing that literally by feeding all this input. And there's a very tight feedback loop. She's getting natural feedback from what happens to the world when she interfaces with it. And she's getting feedback from me and my wife and, and our family and friends um, as she's, you know, labeling things correctly and, and not correctly or, you know, whatever. Like it's it's that tight feedback loop, right? So, so really almost what you're doing is, is just like packaging this very, very, very natural thing that happens to all of us um, and... Yeah, it, it's. I've never understood computers as well as I have in the last year by seeing her basically like self iterate, you know, um, both mechanically and the, and, and language wise. And the key there that that you're referring to, right? Every parent is like, "crap, I got to talk to my kid all the time," right? All the studies say you got to talk to your kid all the time. You need to be there. You need to be present. They can't just learn watching TV. Right? Why? Because there's no feedback loop from the TV to them. They're they're not going to be uh, as socially competent. They're not going to figure out the rules as well if they don't have actively engaged parents who are supposed to be the feedback loop to their learning successfully. Um, and I think that that is the difference between Clara and most machine learning. Like you, you could definitely make that argument where in most cases. Uh, you're learning kind of with a bad parent. There, it's like this parent isn't really around. The feedback loop is poor. They're kind of telling me no sometimes and yes other times. They're not recategorizing the bike as a motorcycle for me um, with the constancy and the rigor of an excellent parent who's there saying, yes, awesome, that's right, right? Like go you or, ooh, you know, a little bit different, a little bit different. And it's, it's that and it's creating that environment so, in software. So there are systems that do this right, where the, the feedback loop is pretty tight. So like um, example, a good example would be like clicking on ads or like when you search something on yep. Google, right? You are actually the feedback loop in that case. Um, whether you, if somebody displays an ad to you and then you decide to click on it, you're basically telling Google, um, I'm the kind of person that wants to click on this kind of ad and it will learn to show you more ads like that. And they're very, very good at that. Um, of course, there's kind of, it's a, it's a kind of 
a noisy feedback loop because sometimes you'll end up biasing it so that it always shows you kind of the same types of things and you don't get to see anything diverse. Um, for us, it's almost like we're getting more ground truth labeling where there is a third party who understands what this really should be um, and gives you that feedback. One thing I wanted to say about conversational interfaces um, is you also have to be really careful with them because uh, while they can be really great, like in our context, they just it just makes so much sense. Um, it is a noisier way of uh, tran transmitting data or, or maybe a better way to put this is not everybody is very eloquent. So not everyone is very good at communication themselves. And by giving people um, structure or, or in the case of a, a GUI kind of like buttons and, and kind of designing things in a certain way, you can build software interfaces so that people make good decisions. Um, and GUIs are really good at that because there's kind of these discrete objects like buttons and forms and, and fields and things like this. Uh, with a natural interface, uh, you are forced to describe something yourself. So if you say, um, hey, uh, what movies are showing today? And then you say, actually, I just wanted action movies. Like you have to think about all of the things you need to tell a system for it to give you the right response. It's like um, if you went to a restaurant yeah. and there was no menu and they were just like, what do you want to eat? Uh, I don't know. Like, yeah. I have no idea what I want to eat. Um, sometimes the menu is, is helpful. Yeah, so so you have to be careful with these kinds of interfaces. Um, you know, you I don't think that every single kind of app or tool necessarily makes sense um, to use an interface like this because people don't really know what it can do or or what to expect out of it, um, or or just more generally, they may not be very good at describing what they want because the way they describe it to their friend. Uh, assumes all of this context that they, they and their friends share together that this that this machine doesn't know about you. So scheduling seems like a fairly safe bite to to sort of bite off. I, I guess I should have used a different word for the first bite. Um, you know, in that there's a lot you can predict about it. Um, there's probably not a ton of like friend level context. Like I could schedule a meeting with someone without having known them for 20 years. Um, and, and that doesn't matter, but you know, maybe my, my last question, um, unless you guys have some other topics that, that we can cover, but you know, I guess for Marin, like when you think about where this could really go, right? Like, um, is it about getting scheduling perfect or is it about sort of taking this system and, thinking about how it could be leveraged and I'm not asking necessarily like where is, where is Clara going to go per se, you know, what's, what's the VC pitch. Um, but it's more like as a, as a human race, like, like this sort of approach that you guys are, are enabling, like where do you think the possibilities are for, for this? Yeah. So, so it feels like there are maybe two questions in that one of them being uh does a model like this make sense for other applications where you do try to intentionally architect this feedback loop where the software is enabling the people to be better and the people are training the software and my answer would be resoundingly yes absolutely right people didn't use to build interfaces this way uh largely because they presumed that there wouldn't be interesting enough things that you could 
do with machine learning such that it would warrant architecting an entire system with it kind of at the center um, and it's that the progress of that software being really imperative and and we have and that's something that's new uh, i think it's important to note that if you want to build something like this uh, saying that you're going to provide a service that does everything or that does a large swath of things is going to be incredibly challenging. Um, I've as, tried as some of your competitors that claim to do that. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes. It's it's hard. It's hard. It's always hard to do lots of things well consistently and, and to scale. be honest, from a user experience perspective, it felt a little bit like the restaurant without the menu where I actually was mm -hmm. paralyzed by the idea of choosing from an infinite number of requests. Like I didn't, you could do anything. And literally my first question was like, what? You know, so um, yeah. they're like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> totally. I, I, there's a really funny anecdote of a good friend of mine um, who uses Clara and also has, you know, used some of these, some of these other services um, trying to buy socks and just like the interaction of like, no, but I, I just want, I want black socks. And it's like, well, but you can have some infinite, you know, there are like thousands of kinds of black socks. And knowing that you wanted black socks at some occasion does not teach you anything about the success of purchases that you may want to make or, you know, how you're going to want your groceries delivered in the future, right? There's not the compounding value there as there can be if you really grow to understand what someone commute looks like how they think about travel time, when they're willing to travel for someone, who is high priority to them, who they want to see on a regular cadence, so right? It's about how going do narrow they and think? deep as opposed to sort yeah. of broad and shallow. And narrow and deep into something that matters, you know, ideally into something that matters. Um, so so my, my answer to the first question, are there other interesting applications of things like this, uh, is yes, I think so. I think we'll see more and more software um, companies or technology companies rather think about approaches like this that, that pull machine learning closer to the heart of what they're trying to accomplish and understand that if, if they want to, uh, they can take advantage of the ability to distribute work. Um, for Clara itself, and I kind of alluded to this in that idea of we get to know you, we get to know who matters to you, we get to know how you want to spend your time. Uh, an anecdote that I love is if if you're spending say 20 hours a week in meetings, right? You're a salesperson, partnerships, executive, recruiter, any number of people. And you eat lunch and you do normal people things um, and whatever, have some stuff you have to do. You have 10 hours in your week left on which you can actually do work. Today, you're spending five of those 10 hours a week scheduling meetings legitimately dealing with the back and forth, the email, the coordination, the information shuffling, such that you have five hours for strategic thinking, for preparing for the meetings themselves, for being good about managing the relationships, for expanding yourself, for growing yourself, for learning, right? Five hours. You know, what do you think about where we can go given how much we understand about how people want to spend their time, where they're going to be, when they're going to be traveling, who matters to them, how much. Um, there's so much there. And we currently refer to Clara as being you know, kind of like an assistant uh, in that we're doing work that's usually given to an assistant. But exceptional assistants are actually really project managers for a person, right? 
I know you, I know your goals, I know the tasks that you need to accomplish to be prepared for this meeting, to be prepared for that board presentation, to be prepared for whatever. I'm going to help you execute against those things. I'm going to help be on top of you. I'm going to help make sure you leave on time to get to the next thing. I'm going to remind you that you need to follow up with that person. Um, and calendar, as you mentioned, calendar and email right now, it, it it's as if it doesn't it's as if it hasn't changed from like the planner, right? That I literally have right here with me right now. There, It hasn't taken advantage of any of the contextual awareness of any of the rest of the internet that it's sitting right on top of and next to. Um, so for us, when when we think about where Clara is going, it, it really is about being a project manager to every person and helping them achieve their goals and spend their time on the strategic work and the relationship work that they both prefer to do over, you know, coordination, tedious information shuffling, um, and, and are better at by their nature. We, we weren't, you know, Adam and Eve, like Garden of Eden, we weren't built to do this work. Like, it's just not fun. So I, I would prefer that it mostly not exist. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a great world. I agree. I think it's pretty interesting how, you know, our digital calendars look exactly the same as our physical calendars. I guess there was a time when like, you know, like skeuomorphism, like let's make everything look like it looked in the physical world, but somehow we never really broke out of that box. And we've kind of talked about this before. Um, calendar companies themselves appear to start up like a new one every year and they would kind of rise and fall. And nobody's quite figured out Sunrise what actually makes and it fall. Fun. Am I right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so no, but it's interesting. There will be, there'll be another one, right? right. So. Skeuomorphism, right? Isn't it's not really about the way it looks. It's about this right. idea of of you know. Now, of course, if we go too far down this hole, you know, scheduling via email is not that different than the way we used to schedule by phone or by letters in a correspondence between two people and. And so um, skeuomorphism almost has its place, like, you know, whatever. When you think of autonomous driving, you know, there's the cars that, that are being built need to work on the roadways that were intended originally for, yep. for non-autonomous cars. If we could reinvent society today and just say, okay, we need to build some roads, but we know that all cars are autonomous, like it would look very different. Our city would look totally different. We we can. It's called a train. So if we, if only we had built more trains. <laughs> if only. Um, and so, so I do think that some of these things have to sort of follow that, like, um, or at least if you want to run a viable business, they they have to. Yep. Um, and then other things, I do think we can sort of reinvent. And this idea of just parts of our digital lives, or definitely non-digital lives, that haven't been like internetized yet. Um, you know, when you think about sort of isolated experiences that everyone's doing at the same time connected to a single server, but everyone's doing it by themselves, like those are all really interesting problems um, and improvements that that can be made. Um, so I know uh, we're running out of time. This has been super amazing uh, and informative. Uh, again, thank you so much for for being on the podcast and also um, for everyone that uh, is interested in trying out Clara, you can check out claralabs.com. Thank you so much uh, both for, for your time and uh, hope to talk to you soon. Thank you.
Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate it.